Chapter 4. Let Trials Make You Better Instead of Bitter Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Hebrews 12, 15. James 1, 3, and 4 reads, The testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The wording is odd. If we never read the verses before, we would probably expect them to say, The testing of your faith produces patience, which makes you perfect. Instead, there are instructive words. Let patience have its perfect work. The Greek word for let is echo, and it is a verb because James is commanding us to do something. We must let trials work. Echo means to have, hold, own, possess, lay hold of. Here are two places it is used. Matthew 3, 13 and 14. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need, echo, to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? Acts 2, 44 and 45. Now all who believed this were together and had, echo, all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had, echo, need. Of the 712 times echo occurs in the New Testament, 613 times it is translated as have because it is not simply about accepting trials in our lives. We must take ownership of them. Instead of resisting trials, we must embrace them. This is how we let God use them for our benefit. The alternative is to fight against trials, which hinders the perfect work they can accomplish. Before doctors administer a shot, they say, relax, try to remain as calm as possible. This will hurt, but it will be worse if you resist. The doctor is telling you to accept what is about to happen because failing to do so will only make an already painful situation even worse. It is the same with trials. We cannot avoid them. They hurt, and we make them worse when we resist. Instead, we must accept them, trusting God wants to use them for our good and His glory. This is how we let trials make us better. The Temptation During Trials Trials and temptations are not the same. Trials are tests from God, and He uses them for our benefit. Temptations, on the other hand, come from our flesh. James 1, 13 and 14 records, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. As much as God uses trials to bring out the best in us, Satan uses temptations to bring out the worst in us. John Broger said, Every person in the world will encounter various trials throughout life. Satan seeks to defeat you by tempting you to trust your own wisdom, to live according to your own self-centered feelings, and to gratify the desires of your flesh. In contrast, God's will is for you to be an overwhelming conqueror in all of these tests for His honor and glory. Although trials and temptations are different for each person, there is one common temptation everyone faces. Even though God uses trials for our good, it is still tempting to become angry with Him. 
When people are suffering, there is greater potential for them to question, criticize, or, worst of all, turn from God. I would love to say trials always produce patience, and patience makes you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But sometimes it would be more accurate to say trials produce bitterness. Perhaps you can think of people experiencing a trial, and they say something like, How could God let this happen to me? I do not deserve it. I wish I could give him a piece of my mind. If we are honest, we can probably think of times trials did not produce patience or maturity in us. Instead of making us better, they made us bitter. Although there are many sins in Scripture, there is no root of lying, stealing, or adultery. Why does Hebrews 12.15 discuss a root of bitterness? Roots grow and become difficult to remove, which is also the case with bitterness. Roots can be destructive, ruining sidewalks and the foundations of buildings. Similarly, bitterness can be destructive, ruining relationships in families, workplaces, and churches. When people experience trials, especially particularly difficult ones such as a disease or the loss of a child, they might feel betrayed by God. Bitterness can come on quickly, springing up as the author of Hebrews warned. Revelation 3.10 calls the tribulation the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Everyone falls into one of two categories when the trials test them. One group gets better. 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Revelation 11.13 Another group gets bitter. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God. They did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl, and there was darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent. Great hail from heaven fell upon men. Men blasphemed God because of the hail. Revelation 16, 8-11 and 21 Both groups experience the same trials, but they produce two different responses. One group is drawn to God. They let trials have their perfect work, and it makes them better. The other group blasphemes God. They reject the trials, and it makes them bitter. A Christian friend's home burned down. His wife and children were okay, but most of their possessions and memories were lost. He and his family had served the Lord faithfully for years. Some people in his situation would criticize God, wondering why he let something like this happen to them. We do not deserve this. What about everything we have done for you? The first time I spoke to my friend after the fire, I told him how sorry I was, and his response was, Scott, it is just stuff not a hint of bitterness. This is the response we need. In the hands of the potter Since God is sovereign, including over the trials we experience, to reject trials is to reject His will for us. Jeremiah 18, 1-3 records an object lesson God used to teach this truth to His people. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. 
More than likely, Jeremiah had passed the potter's house many times in his lifetime. But now, God told him to pay a visit. Isaiah 64, 8 says, We are the clay, and you our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. As Jeremiah watched the potter work, he learned how we should respond to God's work in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul called us earthen vessels. This is fitting, since God formed us of the dust of the ground. Genesis 2, 7. When experiencing trials, probably more than any other time, we recognize the fragile nature of our clay bodies. Job especially noticed this during his suffering. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay. And will you turn me into dust again? Job 10.9. See also Job 4.19. Job asked God to consider how weak his body was, in the hope that it would lead him to ease his trials. We can feel like this during trials too, wondering if God is aware of our feebleness. Does He know how weak I am and that this suffering feels like more than I can handle? As this account reveals, the potter is completely familiar with the clay, and he knows best how to handle it. Clay is a cheap material that remains worthless until it is in the hands of a skillful potter who can make it into something valuable. J. Wilbur Chapman said, the clay is not attractive in itself, but when the hands of a potter touch it, and the thought of the potter is brought to bear upon it, and the plan of the potter is worked out in it and through it, then there is a real transformation. The potter sat before two parallel stone wheels joined by a shaft. He turned the bottom wheel with his feet and worked the clay on the top wheel. The clay sat on the wheel as it turned around and around, picturing the way our lives feel at times. Solomon described the repetitiveness. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9 The potter controls the wheel like God controls the circumstances of our lives. Jeremiah 18.4-6 records, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, and the word for marred is shachath. It means destroyed or corrupted. It is the same word for ruin in Jeremiah 13.7 that describes the profitable-for-nothing sash. Since clay was cheap when a vessel was marred or ruined, potters threw it out and started over. Although the potter Jeremiah watched worked patiently on the same piece of clay until it became a vessel that seemed good to him. Paul said we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 We might feel marred, disfigured, or flawed, but instead of discarding us, God can reshape us into another vessel that is precious and valuable. The Hebrew word for potter is yatser, and over half the time it occurs in the Old Testament, it is translated as form, fashion, or make. For example, it is the word God used when commissioning Jeremiah. 
Before I formed, Yatser, you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 1.5 As God formed Jeremiah, he will form our lives. As the potter had power over the clay, so God has power over our circumstances. Vessels have a purpose, and God fashions us to fulfill our purpose since we are His workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 The potter's hands shaped the clay, and there are many hands God uses to shape us. Parents, siblings, teachers, elders, and authors might come to mind, but Scripture identifies trials as the clearest way God molds us. Unlike the clay on the wheel, which has no free will of its own, we choose how we will respond in the potter's hands. If we are like the clay, soft, pliable, and submissive, then we become better. God will make us into something that seems good to Him. The difficulty is, being shaped on the wheel of life is often painful. Trials can tempt us to become bitter toward the potter who is shaping us. We can become stiff and hard in His hands, which is why Isaiah 45.9 warns, Woe to him who strives with his Maker! Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth! Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? When we fight against our circumstances, we are fighting against our Maker. Pharaoh demonstrates the painful consequences. Pharaoh hardened his heart the first six times, Exodus 7, 13, 22, 8, 15, 19, 32, 9, 7. God hardened it once, Exodus 9, 12. Pharaoh hardened it twice, Exodus 9, 34, and 35. And finally, God hardened it five times in a row, Exodus 10, 1, 20, 27, 11, 10, 14, 8. Although Pharaoh first hardened himself, God hardened him by his wishes. This is a sobering example that should encourage us to have soft, teachable, submissive hearts toward the potter. When the clay becomes as hard as Pharaoh, it can no longer be formed. Then it is good for nothing and must be thrown out. This is what happened with the Jews. Jeremiah 17.23 says, But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. The Jews' hardness in chapter 17 led to the command in chapter 18 for Jeremiah to go to the potter's house. God wanted to show His people He was working for their good. They remained hardened, though, so God showed them what happens to stubborn clay. In the following chapter, God told Jeremiah, Go and get a potter's earthen flask, and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. Jeremiah 19, 1 and 10. God told Jeremiah to bring these leaders with him because this was another object lesson and they could report back to the people what was in store for them if they remained hardened toward God. They would be broken like the clay vessel was broken. Judas serves as a tragic example of such a broken vessel. Matthew 23, 3-7 records, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and went and hanged himself. 
But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. The religious leaders used the money to purchase a field where a potter discarded worthless vessels. Judas was overcome with guilt, but instead of trusting God's forgiveness, he committed suicide. Acts 1.18 says, He purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Judas did not purchase the field himself, but since the religious leaders used the money he gave them, it is attributed to him. When Judas hanged himself, either the branch or the rope broke, and his body fell to the ground. This verse creates the image of a vessel being discarded, then breaking open in the field. God did not discard Judas, though. Judas discarded himself. Since the field was purchased with Jesus' blood money, it reveals Christ's death as the power to redeem all broken, worthless, and discarded vessels. Judas could have been one of them if he had repented. These accounts, Jeremiah at the potter's house, Pharaoh, and Judas, are fascinating because they deal with God's sovereignty and the free moral agency of man. Is the potter or the clay responsible for the way a vessel turns out? In Romans 9, 19-21, the potter looks responsible. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? In 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, the clay looks responsible. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. What is the answer? The correct balance is that while God is sovereign over the trials that come into our lives, we choose how to respond to them. We are in the potter's hands, and we face two choices. If we are soft and pliable, we can become better. If we are stubborn and stiff, we can become bitter. Two individuals in the Old Testament serve as good examples. David made better by trials. One of the lowest points in David's life occurred when his son Absalom stole the throne from him. 2 Samuel 15, 13-14 records, Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This had to be excruciating news for David to receive. It was one thing for Absalom to steal the throne, but it was another thing entirely to learn that the Israelites rejected him to embrace his evil son. As a result, David was forced to flee the capital. When things seemed like they could not get worse, Shimea showed up. 2 Samuel 16, 5-8 says, Now when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimea, the son of Gera, coming from there. 
He came out, cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimea said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue! The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Since Shimea was related to Saul, he hated David for being king instead of one of Saul's sons. Either he did not know God rejected Saul, or he ignored that fact. He also blamed David for Saul's death and the deaths of those in Saul's family, even though David spared Saul's life on multiple occasions and prevented his men from harming him. David's kindness was shown again when his nephew, Abishai, sought to murder Shimea. 2 Samuel 16, 9-12 records, Abishai said, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. David replied, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone, and let him curse, for the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. Twice, David attributed Shimea's actions to God. There is no indication that God told Shimea to curse David, but it still serves as a powerful example of David's confidence in God's sovereignty. David determined to accept this trial as though it was from God, and there is not a hint of bitterness. David showed further restraint toward Shimea despite his continued mistreatment. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimea went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. 2 Samuel 16, 13-14 How much patience did it take to walk along while Shimea behaved this way? This is what it looks like to surrender to a trial, letting it have its perfect work so it makes you better. Asa, made bitter by trials. We discussed Asa, king of Judah, in chapter 1. Second Chronicles 14.2 says, He did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He was one of the best kings in the Old Testament. It is important to know that, because if trials could make him bitter, we must all be on guard against the same thing happening to us. Asa was attacked by the northern kingdom of Israel toward the end of his reign. He turned to the king of Syria for help instead of turning to God, as he had done when the Ethiopians attacked. He removed silver and gold from the temple to pay for Syria's support. They chased away the Israelites, so it appeared Asa's plan worked. God was displeased with Asa, though, and he sent a prophet to rebuke him. Part of 2 Chronicles 16, 7-10 records, the prophet Hanani said to Asa, Were the Ethiopians not a huge army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. In relying on the king of Syria, you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. 
and Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Sadly, Asa was so angry, not only did he punish the prophet who rebuked him, he even lashed out at his people. 2 Chronicles 16.12 says, And in the thirty-ninth year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. Asa probably had gout or gangrene. Since he reigned forty-one years, this was within two years of the end of his life. This once great king was on the verge of finishing poorly. Perhaps it is because he had been faithful to God throughout his life that God was still gracious to him despite his sinfulness. What graciousness? This trial, the disease, gave Asa another chance to turn back to God. Unfortunately, Asa failed. There's nothing wrong with turning to physicians for help, but the verse is worded as a criticism of Asa for turning only to the physicians. Every trial is an opportunity to move closer to God or further away from Him. When suffering, we need to ask ourselves, Am I letting patience have its perfect work? Am I soft, pliable clay? Am I responding like David? Am I accepting the trials in my life so they make me better? Am I preventing patience from having its perfect work? Am I stubborn and stiff in the potter's hands? Am I responding like Asa? Am I letting trials make me bitter? Questions Number 1. Discuss three times you became bitter, or were severely tempted to become bitter, toward God during a trial. Number 2. What does it mean to embrace a trial? Number 3. In what ways have you turned to God when you experienced a trial? Number 4. What is the common temptation we face during trials, and why do we face it? Number 5. How would you recognize if you had a root of bitterness? Number 6. Can you think of other examples in Scripture of people who became better during trials? What about bitter?